to see you. If you could get your way back to your seats, that would be awesome. It is actually really, really good to be here. I've missed you the last couple weeks. Did anybody miss me? Yes. Oh, I, I, that went better than I thought it would, <laughs> if I'm honest. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of preaching at one of our church plants up in Alborn, and then last week, Dean and I swapped places. And so it's amazing how even th- three weeks can feel like a really long time, and I miss you guys. So... Um, Hey, this morning, just a really quick shout out to those in Superior that are gathering. Uh, Today is kind of the initial morning of our Superior campus gathering in the morning. So there's people over at our Superior location on Faxon and and Catlin Street or Catlin Avenue uh, that are gathering and they're working through things the next few weeks to kind of get ready for a launch on February 5th, which is kind of the official date of our new Superior campus starting. So that's exciting. And so if you live or if you work in Superior, I would love for you to pray about the possibility of joining them. Maybe not forever, maybe just for three months or for six months or for a year to help get that new campus established. At first, it's going to be primarily video, so you'll have to still listen to me preach, unfortunately for you. Uh, You can't escape it quite yet. Uh, But we'll be mixing in some other people once or twice a month as well until we can find someone that's a permanent person for over there. But we've got people who are gathered and who are, who are ready to go. And guys, I, when we bought that thing like two years ago, we always envisioned, even though it's a youth center, we always envisioned that there would be a church or a campus like a couple blocks from the college, a couple blocks from the high school. Like if you were looking in Superior, you could not pick a better place. And on top of it, it's a really cool building. Like you could go out into the parking lot and throw a baseball and hit one of the Superior dorms. And so um, I just want to answer real quick the question, why in the world would you go and do that? Why leave something that you know is good for something that's maybe more unknown? That's actually the honest question if we're being straight. Well, one of the things that we seek to do, one of the, the core mission of our church is to multiply at every single level. You see, disciples multiply and they make other disciples as we pour our lives into other people. Leaders multiply and equip and and establish other leaders so that they can lead and oversee the people of God. And actually, got a really cool announcement for you. We have a new pastoral residence starting in February. So Kelsey can no longer come up and be the pastoral resident. (laughs) He got demoted to a pastoral resident. Uh, You guys might might know him already. He's been part of Rock Hill for like eight or nine years. His name's Jason Baltz. So he actually felt stirred and called into pastoral ministry, so he's leaving a full-time job as one of UMD's football coaches, and he's going to enter into a season of, of training and testing uh, in pastoral residency, and we're really, really excited. Jason's a super cool guy. You might not know him because he and his wife, Emily, are actually a key part of the Chester Park campus right now, but you'll probably be seeing him over the next few months. And so disciples multiply and make other disciples. Leaders multiply and make other leaders. Small groups outgrow living rooms and start new small groups so that we can have little pockets of light all throughout the community. And churches, when we outgrow our space, we multiply and we create other communities of light all throughout the Twin Ports. See, the goal is to saturate the area with ordinary followers of Jesus and gatherings of Jesus followers that everybody might know someone who knows Jesus. See, there's a lot of people that would never cross this bridge to come and, and come to church here. They just wouldn't. And so we can take the gospel and go to them. 
And so we're, we're starting that. If, if you're feeling stirred at all, if you would maybe just reach out to one of our pastors so that we can kind of get you connected with them and maybe help, help you see where you might fit over there, that would, be, that would be awesome. See, I think these next few years are a challenging but really, really, really exciting time to be worshipers of Jesus in the world. And even though the temperature and the heat might go up, it might cost us something to follow Jesus, I believe so many of the things that people are putting their hope and their faith in are going to let them down. And we have Jesus, the one who doesn't disappoint. The one who does one day fulfill our greatest hopes and longings, and we can point them to him not because we're superior or awesome, but because he is. It's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, isn't it? And so I, I just, I'm excited for the next few years of what God is going to do in our midst, and that's just a little bit. So if you're interested, talk to me after the service. I'd love to get you connected. Would you pray with me as we open up to the book of Lamentations? God, we're here this morning because you are awesome. And Jesus, you are the fulfillment of our hopes and our longings and our dreams. And so, Lord Jesus, would you speak through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the word that he inspired to be written and written down so that we might have it all these years later. God, speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak to every single person here and listening? Because we need you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. We're in the midst of this thread sermon series where we've gone through the story of the Bible, preaching one sermon from each book of the Bible. And we've seen the history of God and his people. We've seen how God's people entered the land that he had kept for them. How they agreed or made covenant with God on Mount Sinai. But even though God kept his end of the covenant, the people didn't keep the covenant that they made with God. And so after repeated warnings, God's judgment finally falls on his people. Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar, and people were sent into exile into the city of Babylon. Now it's interesting for us to observe these particular events from afar. With distance and time, we're not feeling the, the day-in and day-out reality of being crushed by a brutal opponent. But what did it feel like for God's people in real time to be conquered, to experience God's judgment fall? It was devastating. And that devastation is captured for us in the book of Lamentation. Here's a quick intro to the book. It's one minute long. The book of Lamentations was most likely written by the prophet Jeremiah between 586 and 575 BC, embodying the author's grief as the city of Jerusalem is overtaken by Babylon. Jeremiah organizes his disordered, grief-stricken thoughts into highly structured poetry in an effort to express the depth of his suffering at the destruction of Israel. Each poem wrestles with God's divine and just wrath against Israel's sin. Even though the punishment is just, the ruin of Jerusalem is devastating, likened to a death of a loved one. The author looks past his grief, intertwining pain and confusion with remembrance of the Lord's faithfulness, 
Because of God's steadfast love, Israel will not perish. The Book of Lamentations reminds us that God's mercies are new each day in the midst of chaos and ruin. In order for you to thrive as a follower of Jesus, you need to learn how to lament. Have you ever felt like you were stuck in darkness, longing just for a little bit of light to break through? Have you ever felt that God was consistently against you? That things are so bad for you emotionally that it's actually starting to take a toll on your physical health as well? That you're in a prison that you just can't escape, overwhelmed by heavy chains and brought low? That your prayers leave your mouth and just hit the ceiling, not even getting to God. Do you ever feel like God is lying in wait for you, like a bear or a lion crouched outside your door, ready to pounce when you least expect it, tearing you to pieces under his sheer power? Or do you ever feel like you are right in the crosshairs of God's aim, where he's pulled back his bow and he is aiming his arrows right at you. And then he lets his arrow fly and hits you right in the back. Do you ever feel like everybody laughs at you, taunting you for your faith even though your circumstances are horrible? Do you ever feel like there's nothing but bitterness and gall welling up inside of you? Like your teeth have been chewing on gravel. Like you do nothing but roll around in the dust. You've lost any sense of hope. You've forgotten what peace and happiness feel like. You're completely broken and bowed down by the sufferings that you've endured. Well, that's how the author of Lamentations felt. And that's what he expresses in the first 20 verses of chapter 3. And he was considered a godly man. What is a lament, and why in the world is it in the Bible? A lament is a type of prayer that brings our sense of despair and hopelessness and lays it at God's feet. A lament expresses the fullness of our human emotion and then leaves it at the feet of God as an act of faith. Lament is a way of giving voice to the unspeakable things that we feel, but doing so in faith. Faith that there's a God who actually cares about us. Faith that he actually invites us to bring the full gamut of our emotions to him without smiting us even more. And ultimately, faith that he will see us through whatever feels so crushing to us. One of my goals as a, as a pastor and a regular preacher is to help you gain a framework for life that's shaped and formed by the Bible. To help you know what is true in an ever-shifting world. To help you know who your God is so that when the storms of life come, and they will come, I promise you, you have a way of interpreting life that doesn't lead you to despair but rather to faith-filled hope. See, if you went to a counselor or you went to a therapist, one of the things that they would do, in addition to listening to you and asking you thought-provoking questions, which is immensely helpful, let me add, is attempt to give you tools to use. 
tools to help you deal with your grief and your anxiety and your fear and your pain when they come crashing into your everyday life. Biblical lament is a tool that I want you to understand this morning and Lord willing use one day in your time of need. Does that make sense? So I want you to understand not just what this lament is, but what lament is in general so that you have a tool in your pouch so that when the storms of life come, it can help you get through it in a way that honors God as opposed to leading you away from him. See, the people of Jerusalem have been crushed. Their city has been destroyed, and Babylon was not nice about it. Many people had seen their relatives brutally killed before their eyes. They saw their children starve in front of them. And it's one thing to intellectually know that this is God's judgment coming on you. It's another thing to feel the weight of that judgment land in you and your family's life. And so to deal with the heartache of that reality, Lamentations was written. Now, most people think that Jeremiah wrote it, and I tend to agree with that assessment. He was a prophet of God who was well acquainted with grief. But this book, we need to understand, is not the ravings of a madman or one so stricken with grief that he can't even think straight. It's actually quite the opposite. It's incredibly structured Hebrew poetry that give voice to the deepest feelings of our soul. It's actually four chapters of Lamentations. The first four chapters are a Hebrew acrostic poem. You remember the acrostic poems that you used to write in elementary school? Mom, most awesome, out of this world. Mom, because that's how, that's how like uh, creative we were in elementary school. Write an acrostic poem where every line starts with the next letter, Right? Well, actually, the first four chapters of the book of Lamentations is a Hebrew acrostic poem that goes through the entirety of the Hebrew alphabet, A to Z, or whatever the Hebrew letters are. I'm sure Mike can tell you because no, he knows more Hebrew than I do. But a lament from A to Z, as it were, to express the depths of their grief and heartache to God. Now, in chapters 1 and 2 and 4, if you look, you'll notice that each of those chapters has 22 verses in it. Let me guess, how many Hebrew letters are there in the Hebrew alphabet? Wow, you guys are brilliant. But you'll notice that in chapter 3, there's 66 verses. Now, does anybody have a guess as to how we got to 66 verses from 22 letters? Now, I'm asking you to do a lot of maths today. Yeah, it's three times. In the middle of the book, it's like, okay, we'll just triple it. And so actually, if you look in your, in your English Bibles, you'll notice that every three verses, there's a little break. That's telling you they're moving on to the next letter. So three verses with A, three verses with B, or the Hebrew equivalent of that. Sorry, I don't read Hebrew very well. And it's 66 verses long. Now, chapter 5, all of the structure goes out the window, and he just pours out his heart to God, which we get, Right? Like he's disciplined himself, he's, he's kept his, his comments in this, and then in chapter 5, it's like he can't even, can't even help it anymore. He's just like, God, would you remember us? God, would you see our pain, and would you respond to it? For time's sake this morning, I think chapter 3 is an unbelievably beautiful pouring out of your heart to God with some incredible truth in it. 
But we're just going to look at the first half for time's sake. So Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 to 33. And here's some structure that will help you kind of navigate yourself uh, around in it. Verses 1 to 2, I'll call the, the pouring out of grief, the airing of grievances, the, 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 the gut-level emotion of how Jeremiah feels. Verses 21 to 24 is the remembered truth that after pouring out his heart, he remembers something that is true and good about God. And verses 25 to 33 is actually, I'll call it the struggle in real time. So would you read with me first 33 verses of Lamentations chapter 3. I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. You ever felt like that? He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's not even listening. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. Oh, is that a vivid image? And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and has bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when, he is, when it is laid on him. Let, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion. According to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart. Or grieve the children of men. Verses 1 to 20 are the pouring out of our grief. If you ever need some language to help you feel what you feel, the book of Lamentations is an incredible resource. 
Now, have you ever had someone repeat back to you after sharing with them? So what I hear you saying is this. And then you're like, yes, that's what I've been saying. Exactly, I feel completely understood. And in that moment, simply repeating back what you said with your mouth gives you incredible self-understanding or categories to, to think through. Like you've been given a key to unlock your own heart and soul. Like you feel heard and understood. Men, when your wives tell you, I just want you to listen, I don't want you to fix it, that's what they're talking about. That's what they're trying to articulate. Now, just because I know that doesn't mean I do that all that well. You can just ask my wife. You came to me because you wanted me to fix it. Lamentations does this for us. As you read these heart-wrenching words in poetic form, you sometimes feel like, feel yourself thinking, yeah, that's me. God, that's how I feel. God, it feels like you're against me. Like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and not even being heard. I feel like I'm stuck in prison, bowed down with chains. I feel like you're just waiting to strike me or pounce on me. I'm so bowed down with suffering that life feels hopeless. And in reading these words, often out loud, it's immensely helpful for unlocking our own hearts and our own emotions before the Lord. And then it hits you, wait a second, I'm not alone in feeling this way. And then it hits you even more. One of God's prophets, a godly man of old, felt this way. And he expressed it to God in this vivid and stark of language. And God didn't smite him where he stood. In fact, God welcomed that kind of honesty by recording these words in Holy Scripture so that others who feel this way can go on the same journey that Jeremiah did. It's incredibly freeing, isn't it? To remember that God isn't scared of our emotions, but he does want us to express them in faith. So how do we express the depth of our agony without losing faith or hope? It's not pulling punches. This author doesn't do that at all. Verse 21 guides us. The whole tone of the lament begins to change in verse 21. The author begins to recall truth that he knows, not just the emotions that he feels. And that's key. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope. In him. Verses 21 to 24 are the remembered truth. This I call to mind. This I remember. This I intentionally think about the moment of my despair when all hope seems lost. And it's this the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It means it goes on and on and on, and there's no expiration date. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's love does not have an expiration date. That's good news, isn't it? It doesn't stop loving his people, even in the midst of his judgment and his discipline. God doesn't relate to us on the basis of what we deserve. No, he relates to us on the basis of his mercy, which is not getting what we deserve. And that mercy doesn't expire either. 
fact, there's new mercies waiting for us every single morning because God is faithful and great is his faithfulness. Now these verses are, are famous. This is two weeks in a row that we find ourselves with some coffee cup verses, don't we? Or wall art verses that we can put on our wall that Hobby Lobby makes a ton of money about that are great, but we need to understand the context of them. Imagine with me. Now these have been sung and remembered for thousands of years among God's people, but, but when we read verses 21 to 24, don't we just picture something like this? It's a cool and still morning. You wake up in a small country cottage. You brew yourself a nice cup of coffee. And you go sit on the front porch. There are no bugs this morning because that would make it miserable. Just a slight layer of dew on the grass. You open up your Bible. You read a few inspirational verses. You take a couple sips of coffee. And you begin to pray and think about how God's mercies are new every morning. And as you do, the sun rises in the sky with splashes of color all over. I don't know about you guys, but I idealize that a lot. Like, that's, that's what I feel like a quiet time should be, and it never actually feels that way, right? You're like, it always does. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I know it doesn't. Because I try for that, but I live in a God-forsaken cold place. I can go on my porch once a, once a year. You're like, Kyle, you don't even have a porch. Yeah, but I have a deck. That's often the, the, the picture that we recall when we, when we read these verses. But, but picture this. Imagine going to sleep one night only to be awoken less than an hour later from a phone call that says, you need to get down to the ER pronto. Your child was in a devastating car crash. Or your younger sibling was in a car crash. You don't have time to change. You don't have time to brush your teeth or gather anything. You just... You just jump in the car and you get down to the hospital. That was nine hours ago. Now you're sitting in the waiting room holding a stale cup of coffee in a styrofoam cup just waiting for some news from the surgeon. And these verses come to mind as you watch the sunrise over Lake Superior as you're sitting in the waiting room at Ascension. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The second story is a whole lot more like the original context than the first. This is real faith. Clinging with aching fingers to the precipice of calamity. Feeling like your whole world might come crashing down at any moment. But in that moment, knowing who God is. And in those tenuous moments, choosing to trust him. And coming to the beautiful resolution after hearing his love and his mercy and his faithfulness, that whatever happens, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will have hope in him. What does it mean that the Lord is your portion? It means that God himself is your inheritance, your due, the prize that you really get. Not just his fringe benefits or whether or not he answers this specific prayer, but he is the one that our hearts truly seek after, and he gives us himself every time. It means that you've come to the settled disposition of the psalmist in Psalm 73, which says, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Therefore, I will hope in him. What a beautiful statement of faith that is. The conclusion of a godly person in the midst of their lament is this. Therefore, I will hope in God. Now, wouldn't it be convenient if the lament just stopped there? I feel like that's what we really want. We want it to stop there so we can tie it up with a nice little bow and say, see, just believe, just trust. But we're only about a third of the way through the lament. And some of you guys are thinking, that's because he's only a third of the way through the alphabet and he's got to finish. No, this would have been the normal time to stop if he was using the regular Hebrew acrostic, but he triples it. Why? Because I think the Bible understands us so much better than we understand ourselves. It's one thing to believe something in any given moment. It's another thing to continue to believe it, continue to trust in it, continue to cling to the truth about reality even when everything around us says otherwise. That's why verses 25 to the end become so helpful for us. They show us the struggle in real time, that we need to do this multiple times. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of man. There's a charge here. That even after discovering this good and glorious truth, we are to wait for the Lord. It's good that one should quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord, we're told. Let him sit alone in silence. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Let him bring himself to a position of humility and lowliness. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. See, life isn't always clean and tidy, is it? I struggle with my faith sometimes, and I'm a pastor to remember the truth and to believe what it is I believe during the hard moments of life. And sometimes, as we've seen, even though your perspective changes, your circumstances don't. Ooh, I don't like that. Isn't it just if I get to the right perspective, then God will make everything happy and clean and good? Not always. 11 out of the 12 disciples were killed for their faith and their allegiance to Jesus. See, that's why I think the lament continues. Why it doesn't end in verse 25 with a bow on it. With all these cycles of despair and faith, of crying out in pain and beautiful remembering, because, guys, that's what life looks like. A continual struggle to believe what it is I believe and to live like it's true. To remember that God is good even when it doesn't feel like it. You can't get any more stark language than what we find in verses 1 to 20. And yet the author doesn't end in despair. He ends in faith and he ends in hope. Verses 25 to 33 is the struggle to wait until our faith becomes sight. For the Lord will not cast off forever. 
But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Guys, our struggle will not be forever. But it is appropriate now. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. Isn't that an interesting phrase? God's heart isn't into afflicting and grieving us like it is when he has to love us or when he gets to love us. He disciplines and he punishes, but it comes from a different heart. So how do we not give up hope when times are the bleakest? We, like Jeremiah or whoever wrote this lament, remember God's love and his mercy and his faithfulness, which are new and faithful every day. How do we do that, especially when we're struggling? Certainly, we have times with the Lord when we open up the word and we cling to the truth that we read. Do you guys wonder why we gather every week? You ever wonder why Christians gather all the time? If we're already saved, if we've already put our faith and trust in Jesus, can't we just kind of cruise until the end? We gather every week so that we don't forget what we believe, so that we can remind each other, so that we can sing together truths about God until we believe them again. See, when I gather with you guys, when I gather with my church family, and I look around while we sing, despite what many of you are going through currently, you build my faith. You build my trust in him. You remind me when you're going through it and these things are still true that I can trust him when I'm going through it. The lament continues in 34 to 66, swinging back and forth between expressing heartache and pain and remembering God's goodness and his promise and his love. But brothers and sisters, this is life as exiles. That's what it looks like to cling to faith as we live here in our current city that is but is not our home. I don't want this study of lamentations to be an interesting kicking around of ideas. I want you to become familiar with the the biblical pattern of lament because sooner or later you're going to need it. Life is good and it is beautiful and it is full of vitality and it is also broken and devastating and not the way it should be. And don't we feel both these things deep in our bones? That is life in the already but not yet kingdom of God where we taste and see his renewal but not yet fully. And you need to prepare yourself in the days that are good for the days that aren't. Not by thinking that death and calamity are around every corner but by realizing that suffering and brokenness do happen in this life. We will feel these things. Some of them wonderful, some of them gut-wrenching but we can face whatever comes with the clear eyes of faith because we know our God. We know his steadfast love that never ceases. We know his mercies that are new every morning and we know his faithfulness. Wouldn't it be better if we had these redemptive ways to bring the feelings and emotions that we felt and express them to God and then center ourselves on some rock-solid truths. That's what lament is. As I was reading through verses 25 to 30, and I'll close with this, I couldn't help but think of Jesus, who quietly and perfectly waited for the salvation of the Lord, 
who bore the yoke of suffering in his youth, who sat in silence when he was wrongly accused and mocked and beaten, who let himself be taunted with insults, who didn't just put his mouth into the dust, but was ground into the dust by wicked men, who gave his cheek to the one who strikes. Now, why did he do that? It was so that the judgment of God that the people of Jerusalem in this lament only got a taste of would no longer fall on God's people, but on God himself. So that he would be faithful and mighty to save. So that God's steadfast love would never cease to those who put their faith in him. See, when all else seems dark, when we are tempted to despair that God has abandoned us, we can look to the cross and see with even clearer eyes that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we can say along with Jeremiah, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, how it provokes us and encourages us and gives us tools to fight the heartache of this life. God, help us the next time that something crashes in on us to express our emotions, but to come to a place of beautiful faith and hope as we lament. God, we love you, and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.